is great to kick off our summer season with you today. Brand new series for this brand new season. If you're new or relatively new to Nativity, I want to extend a special welcome to you and invite you to our Welcome Center. Be sure that you visit before you leave today. We have a gift waiting for you there. We'd love to find out a little bit more about you and tell you a little bit more about Nativity as well. And I want to say to all dads, grandfathers, stepfathers, those in fathering roles, happy Father's Day to you. We celebrate you today and thank you for all that you do. My dad this weekend is watching from Boise, Idaho, and I appreciate him in many ways. One of the greatest gifts that my dad has given me throughout my life is to just show up again and again. He will proudly tell you about one of the first times that he showed up to see me in a public speaking role. I had one line as the mayor of Munchkin City in fourth grade, and he loves to talk about it even to this day. He saw something in me then. He showed up, um, and he was also showing up throughout my childhood at family dinner. We had dinner most nights of the week, and it, that always made a really big impression on me, and it did on my four brothers as well. And I can see in the way that they've chosen to prioritize that time with their families. My brother Luke is being celebrated as a father today as well. He has five kids of his own, and he and his wife Katie a few years ago were in the market for a new dining room table. So not only do they have a large family, but they love to host people at their house, so they needed a table that would accommodate all of the people that would be visiting. So this was the table that they ended up getting. I wanted to show you a picture of it. Nice table, solid wood, very attractive. But looking at it from the top, there's nothing particularly special about it. You've probably seen a dining room table like this before, but it's not what's on top that made me want to show it to you. It's what's underneath. So every guest that eats at Luke and Katie's signs their name underneath the table. And if they have kids, the kids get to sign underneath the benches. And their table really tells this incredible story of meals and conversation shared there and of friends and family and time together. Don't get me wrong. The kids grumble sometimes and don't want to eat there. They've had tough moments, tension. They've cried there. The kids have colored there. But you wouldn't know any of that just looking at the table from the top. You have to really get under the hood to be able to see some of the story. It's not the whole story, but it certainly tells a part of it. And that's what we want to do during this new message series. We're talking about the Eucharist, the communion that we share at this table each week. It's one way that our Heavenly Father shows up for us again and again. It's our family meal, and it's Jesus himself. Somehow he changes the bread into his body, the wine into his blood, and so he is fully present to us. So to really grasp what's happening, how these simple elements tell a much bigger story, we're going to get under the hood and see what's special about the meal that we share at this table. So I invite you not just today, but for the weeks to come, no matter where you are in believing and understanding the Eucharist, I hope that this series will help you to have a deeper appreciation for it. Because the Eucharist really is God's presence. That's what we titled this series, and it's a word that's just brimming with meaning, presence. To me, presence is the person, and there have been a few of them in my life, who have sat across from me at times, and they make me feel like the most important person in the world to them in that moment. Nothing is more important than what I have to say to them. That, to me, is presence. And during COVID, 
there were many times, I think, when we felt the need for presence because we felt isolated in some way. We can still feel that. Even in a room full of people, we can be lonely, and the only thing to break through that is someone's presence with us. I remember watching Mass one Sunday during COVID, and I was home alone. I was kneeling during the Eucharistic prayers, and I found myself just starting to hug the chair in front of me because I think I missed the presence of people and of Jesus in the Eucharist being home alone. Presence is something that we experience at church each week. Uh, We say that Jesus is present in four ways at Mass. He's present in the Word and the Scriptures that we proclaim. He's present in the people that gather in all of us. He's present in the priest who acts in the place of Jesus. But he's perhaps most visibly present in the Eucharist. And to say that, as we start this series, that Jesus is present in the Eucharist, there's a bit of a mystery to that, something that our senses can't really fully grasp. And here's a little secret. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance if all that we're using to understand it is our five senses. It doesn't make sense that the bread would become flesh, the wine would become blood, when it doesn't change in appearance to our eyes at all. And it it doesn't really make sense that an all-powerful God would choose, choose such simple things, would choose flour and water, fermented grapes, wafer and drink to always be among us, to move our souls closer to him. It doesn't really make sense at first glance that this, what we do on the altar each week, is God's plan for humanity. I will gladly admit it doesn't make sense at first glance, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. So today, what I'd like to do is give you a not-so-secret and hopefully simple formula that makes the Eucharist make sense. And by answering that question, I hope to answer another. Why do we go to church week after week? What's the point in our presence and our being here? So to help us find that formula and to answer that question, we're going to go way back in Scripture to the beginning of the Bible and a seemingly obscure story. And the good news is that it's only a few verses long, so you can thank me for that later. It's the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and the world at this point is pretty chaotic, crazy. There are lots of battles and war. Land is being settled. There's really not a lot of society that's set up yet. It's mostly tribes. So to introduce us, We start in Genesis 11. We meet our main character, Abram. We hear his genealogy. Subsequent chapters, he meets his wife, Sarai. You might know them better as Abraham and Sarah. God later changes their names. But at this point, he's still Abram. And at this point, he and his nephew, Lot, have a large tribe. And God promises their tribe significant land. But eventually, Abram and Lot, they separate because their tribe is splintering and squabbling. And they settle in different places. It says this, Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. So they are separate and that brings us to Genesis 14 where there's a years-long battle that ensues between tribes over land and power. Now as we read the Old Testament, as we read a story like this, it's probably easy to say, "Ah, that's ancient history. That doesn't really apply to us today. But I would say go look at current events in the world and there are wars being fought in our world today over those two things, land and power. And if world events escape you, all you need to do is look at the battles in our neighborhoods 
over property lines, dogs barking, yard maintenance, lawn mowing. And we can see that the ancient world really isn't that far from our reality today. So the war in this case is between kings and kingdoms that are slightly larger than Abram's and Lot's tribe. And the details of this war are a little convoluted and fuzzy like most battles, but here's the important thing for us to understand. The victors after all these battles are these kings and their armies and they seize Sodom, they seize Lot and his possessions and his people and they depart. And Abram finds out about this and he goes in pursuit. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been captured, he mustered 318 of his retainers, born in his house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He and his servants deployed against them at night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He recovered all the possessions. He also recovered his kinsmen Lot and his possessions, along with the women and the other people. So, at this point, you might be saying, what in the world does this have to do with presence or with Eucharist? We're going to get there, I promise. But all that's happened is that Abram has gone and recovered all of this. He's victorious, and he kind of takes his victory lap. When Abram returned from his defeat of Chater Laomer and the kings who were allied with him, the king of Sodom went out to greet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Now, we didn't read the first part of this chapter, but there was a lot of buildup, and in all of that buildup, a lot of kings and kingdoms were named. There were 10 kings, five tribes, 19 territories named. None of them were Melchizedek. None of the places were Salem. So Melchizedek is this mysterious figure who's just dropped into this story. If you were Abram, this was a battle in your homeowner's association over property lines. He's the neighbor from down the street. You didn't even know his name, and he comes and knocks on your door to congratulate you, and you don't even realize that he was on your side. Just this guy that shows up. And even better, as Abram finds out to have on your side, he's a priest, so Melchizedek brings these things, and then he does this. Melchizedek blessed Abram with these words. Blessed be Abram by God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your foes into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This whole interaction is very strange. Abram is a triumphant victor. And this war-torn world that he lives in, what would be typical is that the king and the victor would have some sort of exchange. But this mysterious priest, King Melchizedek, he brings bread, wine, and prayers. Now, if I were Abram, I think I would be a little insulted. He just saved an entire tribe, their leader, their people, their possessions. That calls for a little bit more than these meager offerings that he's been brought. If I were Abram, I think I'd be thinking those words from Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Show me the money. But instead, Abram has this equally strange reaction. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That's a tithe. A tithe is a tenth. So instead of hoarding the wealth that he just acquired, Abram gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. So you might be hearing echoes of something here that is familiar, but let's really put our finger on it. 
Now, even today, scholars really don't know who Melchizedek is, but there are a few interesting details. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and the place that he's king of, Salem, is peace. That means peace. So there's no lineage identified for Melchizedek. His kingship seems to go beyond a place, and he is both a priest and a king, which is unprecedented, especially for this time. And all of this foreshadows who Jesus is. He's the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace. His kingship is from heaven, not from earthly sources. Jesus is the high priest, and he's the king of kings. And what's more, Jesus also brings an offering of bread and wine to the Last Supper. And he is deserving of our worship. So that's why we come. We bring our hearts to him when we come to church, and we also make an offering or a tithe, because where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. So this is really the first time in scripture we hear about the significance of sharing bread and wine. This whole encounter looks like the mass. It looks like what we do every week. And I love that it's in the middle of life and battles because that's exactly when we come to church. In the middle of our daily battles and our life, we come to receive. So Melchizedek is God's vessel to bring Abram to a moment of worship and of gratitude. God could have done it by raining down manna. He does this in Exodus with Moses and the Israelites, but here instead he chooses a messenger who can be fully and completely present to Abram. So here's what I would surmise from this encounter. I think that we can get our formula for the Eucharist. We can add it perhaps to other famous formulas like E equals MC squared, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Maybe it'll rise to that level someday. But it's the basis for what's to come, for all that Jesus does at the Last Supper. So here is the formula. Bread plus wine plus prayers plus presents equals Eucharist. Bread plus wine plus prayers plus presents equals Eucharist. You take away any of those elements and the Eucharist really isn't the Eucharist. We need all of them. Bread is substantial. Wine is cleansing. The prayers remind us of the source of our meal. The presence reminds us of our need to be fed, to eat. All of those combine these simple elements to transform something that is actually quite simple as an equation and can make it into a life-changing encounter. There's certainly more detail that's needed to fill in the full story, but that is why this is a six-week series. So for now, this formula is going to be a guide to at least put us on the right track. And this moment between Abram and Melchizedek is the first time in our scriptures that God just hints, hints at what is to come. So in the same way our earthly fathers can show up for us, our heavenly father shows up for us, and he invites us to join him for supper. It's a standing offer. Now, these days, I don't get to eat supper with my father, my earthly father, very often. But whenever I'm home, I try to take that opportunity to sit down with my dad, my mom, any other family that can gather and share a meal together. And I never find myself saying, you know, we did that as kids. I don't need to do that anymore. Because there is power in repeating the ritual and the love that comes from it. And our life is full of repetition. We need it. It's a healthy part of who we are. So to get back to that question, why do I go to church every week? It's because it answers a need. 
Why do I need to tell someone that I love them time and time again? I told you that I loved you back when we got married. I told you on our anniversary. What do I need to tell you all the time? Or why do I need to eat every day? I ate last week. Or even better, why do I need to go to the gym regularly if I want to stay in shape? I went a few times as a teenager. And if I go to the gym, why do I need to pick up the weights? Isn't it enough to just be there and look at them? At least I showed up. It makes sense, right? Repetition, ritual, it's a logical part of our healthy life. We need it. We need the Eucharist on repeat. It gives pause to our daily battles, like it gives pause to Abram. We pause, we follow that formula that has stood the test of time. Wine plus bread plus prayers plus presence equals the Eucharist. So Melchizedek brought these gifts to Abram, and as priest and king, he was Abram's superior. But even though he was the superior, he was the one that was blessing Abram with prayer. He served Abram with food and drink. He gathered Abram's people together. And even though our God is infinite and all-powerful, God is the one blessing us through the Eucharist. It's God feeding us. It's God gathering us. And in our world full of battles, of battles that divide us over everything from politics to education to religion to property lines to how high your grass is getting, we need something that's unifying. It's more important than ever to have something that brings us together, to be present to one another, to be present before God in shared worship. So I invite you, in response to this message, to do two things. Number one, consider one person in your life that you can be present to this week. Maybe it's your father or a child. Maybe it's a friend or a coworker. Whoever that person is, just go and be present to them. Give them your undivided attention, even if just for a few minutes sometime this week. And number two, join us as we get under the hood of the communion table in the coming weeks. Help us to unpack this mystery and majesty of the Eucharist that we share each week. I especially encourage you, if you can, to join us in person because your presence really does make a difference. But you can always join us online as well. As we go through this series and as you go through life, consider who is next to you in your battles, who is celebrating you and encouraging you, whose presence do you want to be in? Whether we're in battle or in victory, being in the presence of the Eucharist steers our course. It steadies our direction. We come to church each week because it means Jesus is beside us. And especially when life's battles get tough, he will sustain us with bread, wine, prayers, and presence. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence here each week your presence with the people, with your word, and the priest, but especially in the Eucharist, the way that you come to meet us in our late daily battles, in our life. We pray that we can deepen our appreciation, our love for you, and receive you in the Eucharist. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for watching. Be sure you hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a thing. You can be part of our mission to love God, love others, and make disciples by sharing this video. We're grateful that you're part of this community.